Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. If you love chilling mysteries, unsolved cases, and a touch of mom-style humor, Moms and Mysteries is the podcast you've been searching for. Hey guys, I'm Mandy. And I'm Melissa. Join us every Tuesday for Moms and Mysteries, your gateway to gripping, well-researched true crime stories. Each week, we deep dive into a variety of mind-boggling cases as we shed light on everything from heists to whodunits. We're your go-to podcast for mysteries with a motherly touch. Subscribe now to Moms and Mysteries wherever you get your podcasts. South Africa, a country whose spectacular beauty and dynamic people are known the world over. But there's another side to our country, and one that is rarely discussed in the detail it deserves. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, on True Crime South Africa, South Africa's first victim-focused true crime podcast, as we go beyond the headlines focus on the victims, and explore some of South Africa's most heinous, violent crimes. True Crime South Africa is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. As Bessie walked along the road, the murderer raised the stake up to shoulder height and brought it down with his full force on her head. The attacker then brought the four-foot-long sharpened fence stake down on her head again and again and again. Such was the force of the blow that Bessie's skull cracked open and with the next blow, part of her skull disintegrated and her brain was exposed. There was blood everywhere and, as his frenzy subsided, the murderer dropped the stake and looked at what he had done. The murderer then dragged her body into the ditch at the side of the road so it wouldn't be seen by passers-by. An alleged confession, multiple witness accounts and an arrest by the end of the day. It seemed the case was clear-cut. But there are a number of inconsistencies and challenges that come up with that version of events. This is Red Rum. Stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 49. Bessie Shepherd. Hello, Red Rum listeners. I just wanted to pop a little message in here to say that if you've left us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you've rated us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, Thank you. I read every single uh, review and it means a lot. And also, if you've ever recommended us to a friend or um, on a Reddit post or a Facebook group, anything like that, I see you and I thank you. It really does make a huge difference to us. So, thanks. With many thanks to our guest writer for their help with this episode. 
17-year-old Elizabeth Shepherd, known as Bessie, lived in a small cottage with her mother Mary and her brother Joseph in the village of Papelwick, Nottinghamshire in 1817. Papelwick village is close to the heart of Sherwood Forest, less than 17 miles from the major oak of the Robin Hood legend, and it's said that Alan Adale, one of Robin Hood's men, was married at Papelwick's St James's Church. Around seven miles north of Nottingham and seven miles south of Mansfield lies Papelwick village. It's just a short distance along where the Blibworth Way and the busy A60 road lies, which back in 1817 was just a pothole track connecting Mansfield and Nottingham. Back then, of course, walking was the main method of transport for the majority of the population. Most people couldn't afford a horse to ride or a carriage to travel in, so making the journey between the town and the city was usually done on foot. People wouldn't really travel unless they really felt that they had to. The track was a lonely and desolate place after dark. It was heavily overgrown with leafed remnants of Sherwood Forest towering overhead. They enclosed the traveller between the deep, dark ditches on either side. By the late afternoon or early evening, anyone on the road would be keen to get home or find a place of safety to stay, not knowing who they might meet. Bessie's family was poor as there was no traditionally male breadwinner in the household. So Bessie and her mother Mary had to find work where they could so that they weren't made destitute by their landlord. The landlord made a considerable fortune from exploiting the poor and their children and putting them to work from the age of eight for up to 16 hours a day in his local textile mill. The mill made cloth, which was then sold at incredibly high prices for uniforms for soldiers fighting Napoleon. Many of these factory workers died in their 30s from inhaling mill cotton dust. Bessie was determined she wouldn't work there. She saw the consequences of death and disease on a daily basis and she'd do anything to avoid the mill. But it was difficult because although pay in the mill was terrible and life expectancy was short, there was a war on and money was tight. The invention of industrial machinery had led to a significant loss of jobs and if you missed a month's rent, you'd be out on the streets. You had to do whatever you could to survive. Bessie Shepherd, though, was an optimist. She was hard-working, intelligent, although not traditionally educated, and determined. She was going to do something that would offer her the chance of earning a good living, as well as giving her interesting opportunities, so that she could help her mother and brother to eat and pay the rent. Mansfield would be a good place to look for some kind of job that was not mill work. Bessie was already known by the people in the town. A weekly market and auction was held near a public house called The Swan, and the activity, energy and excitement it created attracted people from the surrounding villages. It was a place where you could pick up a bargain, have a drink in one of the local pubs or just get chatting to others at the auction. For the men, there were other attractions in this particular part of town. It was known for its sex work industry. On a warm summer's morning on the 7th of July 1817, Bessie left Papelwick to walk to Mansfield. Her mother Mary said goodbye to Bessie that morning and she told her mother that she was going in search of a good job that would provide the family with the money they needed. We don't know what type of job she was looking for. Maybe something in service at one of the large houses in Mansfield or 
working in one of the inns like the Swan. She looked the part as she set off that morning. She wore her Sunday best, including a new pair of shoes that she'd paid a fortune for, but it would be worth it. People always looked at your shoes. They made an impression. She was also carrying a yellow umbrella. Even on a summer's day like today, you could never trust the weather. Charles Rotherham was 33 years old and had apprenticed as a scissor grinder in Sheffield before leaving it early to join the army. He'd served for 12 years and became a hardened soldier in the Corps of the Artillery Drivers, taking part in many battles in Egypt, Portugal, Spain and most recently the Napoleonic Wars in France. Most joined the army to escape poverty, some joined as an alternative to imprisonment with hard labour. At the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, the army was returned to its peacetime levels and Charles, together with thousands of other men, were discharged back into society by an ungrateful government and left to wander the country looking for work. Coming out of the army was hard for these ex-soldiers. They were regarded as a problem for decent society and were seen as violent drunks who were too quick to get into a fight. The Duke of Wellington described the British army as, quote, the scum of the earth and the dregs of society. Using whatever skills they'd acquired, these men made a living as best they could. As Bessie arrived in Mansfield after lunch looking for work, Charles was drowning his sorrows in the pubs. His wife had left him and he was en route for Loughborough, where he had heard there was haymaking work, although he wasn't making much progress except at downing seven pints of ale. It's quite possible one of the pubs he visited that day was the Swan, getting himself noticed by the other drinkers because of his noisy, drunken behaviour. As well as the main bars at the Swan, there was a coffee room that was known to be a club for many of the noblemen, gentlemen and principal tradesmen of the local area. It was an exclusive club. Members of the Coffee House Club had to vote on who else could join. If you wanted to get on in your career or become prosperous in your business, it was essential you were accepted into the club. Each of the members swore allegiance to provide support and help to other members in times of trouble. Your loyalty lay with them above everything else. One of these members was likely to have been Anthony Buckles, who owned quarries in the nearby area and was based close by to the Swan. By the late afternoon, Bessie had found the job she was looking for. She was overjoyed. She wouldn't be forced to work in one of the mills and might be able to take advantage of any opportunities offered to her. By quarter to six that evening, Bessie's mother Mary was getting worried. She was wondering where Bessie was. Why hadn't she come home yet? And something happened to her. Mary decided to walk from the cottage, along the Blidworth Way, to the Mansfield-Nottingham Road, and stopped where the path met the road. She was stood between the hut, a historic pub and eating house that still stands there today, and the next toll bar towards Nottingham. She looked out for any sign of Bessie far in the distance, but Bessie still hadn't left Mansfield. Sarah Clay, a worker at a mill close to the Swan Inn, later testified that Bessie left Mansfield for Papplewick at precisely 5.57pm. She could be so precise because there were a number of clocks on the churches and public buildings near the Swan, 
and it must have been from here that Bessie began her journey back towards Papplewick. Bessie would have been excited to tell her friends and family about her new job. She had a long walk home and would be late for her dinner, although it wouldn't seem so far now because she had this great news to think about. Just as Bessie was leaving, Charles decided he should start making progress towards Loughborough, so he finished his pint and started to walk along the same road as Bessie, just a few minutes behind her. Charles's walking pace was fast and he soon overtook Bessie without really noticing her. He gradually pulled a few hundred yards ahead until he disappeared from her view. William Thompson was walking in the opposite direction along that road at some time between 6 and 7 o'clock. He saw Charles striding towards him at a fast pace on the other side of the track. William said that Charles wasn't carrying anything. Shortly afterwards, he also saw Bessie walking along that same road, some two to three hundred yards behind Charles. Bessie's mum was still standing on the road looking towards Manfield. At first, she couldn't see anyone, but then as she focused, she could see a figure that she thought was Bessie. She felt a strong sense of relief. It wasn't too far for her to come now, and she was safe and on her way. Mary turned around and started to walk back to the cottage to make tea, so it would be ready for when Bessie got home. She would be hungry after her day in town and such a long walk. Although Charles had set himself a fast walking pace, he couldn't keep it up, and after he'd walked past the hut pub and carried on a little way towards the next toll bar, his tiredness overcame him possibly as a result of the ale that he had already drunk. He sat down at the side of the road for a rest. Bessie had now reached the hut, and as she turned the corner, she saw Charles Rotherham sitting, resting. She kept walking. It was lonely and remote out there. The only buildings nearby were Newstead Abbey, which was set back from the road behind trees, and the hut pub, which was now some way behind her. Bessie was on her own, on the road and approaching Charles. As she drew level with Charles, he stood up and Bessie, a little unnerved by this, continued to walk past him. At some point around this time, Bessie was murdered. There were no witnesses. What we know for certain is what was found at the murder scene. A fence stake is a large, four-foot-long piece of branch, sharpened at one end into a point and about two inches thick. As Bessie walked along the road, the murderer raised the stake up to shoulder height and brought it down with his full force onto her head. Bessie whimpered with the unexpected pain as she fell to the ground. The attacker then brought the four-foot-long sharpened fence stake down on her head again and again and again. Such was the force of the blow, Bessie's skull cracked open and with the next blow, a part of her skull disintegrated, exposing her brain. The attacker continued to beat her, now totally unconscious body, until one of Bessie's eyes was dislodged from the socket and hung loosely by the optic nerve. The next blow severed it, so her eyeball lay on her cheek. There was blood everywhere, And as his frenzy subsided, the murderer dropped the stake and looked at what he had done. Bessie's limp body lay there, lifeless, her limbs tangled, her brain half out of her skull, 
and an empty eye socket where her eye had once been. Bessie's new shoes that she was so proud of lay on the road. The force of the attack had jolted them off of her feet. Her umbrella lay beside them. The murderer then dragged Bessie's body into the ditch at the side of the road so it wouldn't be seen by passers-by. As he dragged her body, a haypenny dropped out of Bessie's pocket onto the road without being noticed and her body was left in the ditch for the foxes and crows to eat. A little time after it's assumed the murder took place, William Bell met Charles Rotherham a few hundred yards on from the scene of the murder. Charles was walking towards Nottingham. The men stopped to talk and discovered that they were both ex-soldiers looking for work. Charles suggested that they return to the hut, back towards the scene of the yet unknown murder, and have a drink in the pub. William agreed, and both men walked towards the hut, where they had a couple of pints. Charles told William about his wife and the two chatted about their experiences in the army. After about 15 minutes, just after 7pm, Charles left to restart his journey to Nottingham. Back on the road, Charles was walking towards Nottingham and he passed Thomas Highgate, who was walking the opposite way towards Mansfield, about a third of a mile from the place of the murder. Thomas noticed that Charles was carrying an umbrella and a package assumed to be Bessie's shoes. As we know, William Thompson, who had seen Charles on the road earlier at about 6pm, testified that Charles was carrying nothing at that time. So, sometime between 6 and 7 o'clock, Charles had apparently picked up Bessie's shoes and umbrella. At about 9.30 that evening, Charles reached the Three Crowns at Redhill, where he tried to sell Bessie's shoes for two shillings, 10p, stating that they were his wife's shoes and that she had left him. The landlady of the Three Crowns also remembers Charles carrying a light-coloured umbrella. It was late. It was dangerous on the roads at night. You just didn't know who you might meet, so Charles stayed at the Three Crowns and fell asleep quickly. It had been quite an exhausting day. The next morning, he was up early. He still had money in his pocket, but he needed work. He needed to get to Loughborough for haymaking, so he left the Three Crowns at 6.15am, leaving Bessie's shoes behind in the room that he had slept in. At about the same time as Charles was leaving the Three Crowns, a member of a local Mansfield quarry gang, John Womley, arrived to start work between the Hut pub and the next milepost stone, towards Nottingham, near to where Bessie's body lay. As he walked along the road... Something on the ground caught his eye. It was a haypenny. This was a real bit of luck for this day and age. John Womley picked the money up and popped it in his pocket thinking no more about it. The rest of the gang arrived and started work. Despite Bessie's body being nearby, it was three hours before something in the ditch caught John's eye. Thinking he might be in luck again, he walked over. As he approached the ditch, he stopped smiling he began screaming. The rest of the gang stopped what they were doing and looked up towards John. When they saw his face, they all dropped their tools and ran over to him. They too could now see what John could see and they stood there, speechless. The crushed skull and hollow eye socket of a young woman's body lay in a heap in the ditch, her petticoat removed 
and her shawl lost in the undergrowth. As the other quarrymen stood staring at the scene, a man and woman passed in the horse and carriage. When they saw the body, the woman screamed, burst into tears and looked away in shock. The man was transfixed. It took some time for them to recover enough to speak to the quarrymen, and it was decided that they would go to Nottingham as quickly as possible and tell the police. It would take them some time to travel that distance on the potholed track, time enough for John to report his awful discovery to the quarry owner, the same Anthony Buckles, who was part of the Swan Coffee Room Club. By 10am that morning, Charles had reached Nottingham where he stopped for a drink and something to eat and to find the way to Loughborough. It took over an hour for the man and woman in the horse and carriage to reach Nottingham. They then reported that a, quote, girl had been found in a ditch outside of Mansfield, battered to death. A medical practitioner was sent to examine the body where it lay before it would be taken to Sutton, close to Mansfield, for a coroner's inquest later that day. Police Constable Ben Barnes was assigned to investigate the murder. He mounted a horse to set off immediately towards Mansfield and the scene of the murder, the opposite direction from Charles's route. The quicker he started his investigation, the more likely he'd be to find out who had committed the murder and hopefully make an arrest so that justice could be seen to be done. Even so, he couldn't have arrived at the scene before 11.30am at the earliest, by which time Charles was south of Nottingham and well on his way towards Loughborough. With Bessie's body in such an awful state, news reached Mansfield quickly and the local newspapers got the story. As PC Ben Barnes arrived at the scene, the witnesses that had seen Charles on the road were already coming forward in Mansfield to tell the police that they had seen a man walking along that same stretch of road as Bessie the previous evening. PC Ben Barnes first questioned the quarryman and then went to the hut as the closest public building to the murder site to do more investigating. He was told that two ex-soldiers had been in there the previous evening and one of them had left after a short time. PC Ben Barnes went back to the murder site where a message had been received from Mansfield about a man seen on the road walking ahead of Bessie and then later he was seen on his own walking towards Nottingham. At this point, PC Ben Barnes made the decision that this was the man who had murdered Bessie Shepherd. It's difficult to know the reason for his decision. He had the vaguest description of Charles and there were others who had the opportunity to murder Bessie, such as William Bell, who drank with Charles in the hut, or indeed any other person walking along that road that evening. But PC Ben Barnes was set on Charles and followed his route on horseback. It was now 1.30 in the afternoon. At each pub along the road, PC Ben Barnes stopped and went in to ask if any travellers had come in. He found that a man had gone into the ginger beer house at the seventh milestone towards Nottingham and tried to sell a pair of women's shoes. At the Three Crowns in Red Hill, the landlady confirmed a man had stayed the night and left Bessie's shoes in his room after unsuccessfully trying to sell them in the pub that evening. He had, however, taken the umbrella with him. From there, PC Barnes travelled into Nottingham City. Somehow, PC Barnes managed to establish that the man had reached Nottingham at 10 o'clock that morning and asked for directions to Loughborough. 
A second police officer joined PC Barnes to take up the pursuit. The two of them then started to follow the road to Loughborough, stopping at Bunny Village, a hamlet 16 miles south of the murder scene. The man they were following had arrived here at about 1.30pm and gone into the Rancliffe Arms, the landlady confirmed. He had then sold her Bessie's umbrella. The two constables then continued towards Loughborough. As they approached a bridge about a half mile outside of the town, they could see a man walking in the distance. They rode on and drew level with him whilst he was crossing the bridge into the town. PC Barnes claims that he could see the spots of blood on this man's coat collar and neckerchief and so they dismounted and confronted the man. There, PC Barnes arrested the man for the murder of Bessie Shepherd. The man they arrested was Charles Rotherham. It was now late and there was no way they could get back to Sutton where the inquest would be held before dark. As it wasn't a good idea to travel after dark, they took Charles back to Nottingham where he spent the night in the cells. It was here, in the dark dungeons of Nottingham Jail, that during a long night of questioning, PC Barnes claims Charles made a full confession. According to that confession, as Bessie had passed him on the road, Charles had, without premeditation or reason, murdered Bessie Shepherd. He'd then stolen her shoes and umbrella and dragged her body into the ditch. The next day, PC Barnes took Charles to Sutton where he was committed for trial at Nottingham Court, Halls of Justice. As Charles left the coroner's hearing, PC Barnes paraded Charles in front of a growing crowd who had gathered to see the cold-blooded murderer of Bessie Shepherd. It's very possible that William Thompson and Thomas Highgate, the two witnesses who had seen Charles on the road, were amongst the crowd. And why wouldn't they be? This was a major event in the lives of Mansfield people, and after all, they had been on the road on the evening of the murder. Charles was taken back to Nottingham Jail to be held until his trial. He was taken there by PC Barnes, who was now being held a hero. On the way back, they had to pass the place where Bessie's body was found. PC Barnes claimed that Charles had pointed it out to him. He pointed out the place where he took the hedge stake, which was on the opposite side of the road to where the murder was committed. He apparently went on to tell PC Barnes that he did not know what had possessed him to do it, but as he approached her, he struck her on the head and kept on hitting her until she was dead. At this point, he turned out her pockets without finding anything of value. He then began to remove her clothing from the front, expecting to find valuables concealed, but there was nothing. So all he was able to take were her shoes and her umbrella. Whilst Charles was awaiting trial in Nottingham, Bessie's funeral took place on the 10th of July at St James's Church in her home village of Papawick. Her grave is visible today in the churchyard by some steps leading to a storage room. It's marked by a small rectangle of slate, just 8 inches by 12, and simply says, Elizabeth Shepherd, 1800-1817. Bessie, who had suffered such a violent death, could not even have a peaceful burial. At this time, the wealthy Church of England was being challenged by a number of dissident churches, such as Methodists and Baptists, who rejected the ornate ceremony-based of the established churches and their earthly wealth in favour of simple, straightforward worship and providing help for the less fortunate. The clergy and bishops of the Church of England 
lived well on the contributions of the people in their parish, who themselves often went hungry and lived in slums with little money to bring up their children. The dissidents, attracting as they were a large following, were a threat to the income of the established churches, and they did all they could to oppose and undermine the growth and popularity of the rebel churches. Bessie was a member of one of these churches, worshipping in a nearby village. At her funeral, at the local Church of England St James, some of Bessie's dissident church friends came first to see Bessie's home by Mary's invitation, and then they followed the coffin through the village as it was taken to St James's church. After the funeral service had finished and the coffin was brought out to be placed in the grave, mourners from Bessie's church began singing a beautiful hymn over her coffin. As they started to sing, the vicar of St James's, the Reverend Hurt, shouted at them to stop. Then, in front of Bessie's grieving mother, he told the rebel worshippers to get out of his churchyard and go back to their own church. Bessie's mother burst into tears. All she wanted was a loving send-off for her daughter. All Reverend Hurt wanted was an end to the dissident churches nearby that were stealing his congregation and his source of income. The incident was reported in the Nottingham Journal on the 25th of July and was a disaster for Reverend Hurt and St James. The journal made the point that Hurt's behaviour was likely to swell the congregations of the rebel churches at the expense of St James. Reverend Hurt was shaken by the level of public reaction to his behaviour and replied to the journal article. Arrogantly, he first challenged the integrity of the newspaper editor and then he stated that he had received no request for a hymn to be sung over the grave and even if he had, he would only have allowed it if it was part of the official Church of England burial service. In a respectful and polite tone that contrasted starkly with Reverend Hurt's published letter, the dissidents replied highlighting Reverend Hurt's abusive and rude behaviour and explaining that Mary had asked them to come and they had sent a note to Reverend Hurt explaining this and that they would like to sing a hymn as Bessie was buried. As they received no reply, they assumed there was no objection. This time, Reverend Hurt did not respond and the matter was closed. The trial of Charles Rotherham was held on the 25th of July. His original plea was guilty, but the judge persuaded him to plead not guilty, so a full trial was held and all the evidence was presented and the witnesses were heard. A total of 14 witnesses were called to give evidence. William Thompson, who had seen both Charles and Bessie walking along the other side of the road before the murder three weeks earlier, was able to give a completely accurate description of Charles and even described Bessie as 17 years old. Thomas Highgate, who had seen Charles walking away from the murder scene, similarly described Charles's appearance in detail and also what he was carrying, an umbrella and a parcel. There could be no doubt that the man in the dock was the man that they had both seen. William Bell, the ex-soldier, explained how he had met Charles on the road 15 minutes after it was assumed the murder took place and he had gone into the hut for a beer and a chat. The pub owners along Charles's route to Loughborough and those who had seen Charles in Mansfield and Nottingham also gave their testimony. And other witnesses identified Bessie's movements on the day of the murder as leaving Papawick and arriving at Mansfield. Sarah Clay testified that Bessie left Mansfield at precisely 5.57pm. 
PC Ben Barnes described the pursuit and arrest. Then, Charles's confession was read by a police officer without premeditation and with no explanation as to his reason, he had the idea of murdering Bessie. Once he had done so, he carried on with his journey as though nothing had happened. At no point, he stated, had he thought about robbery until after she lay dead and her umbrella and shoes lay on the ground. At this time, there was no legal requirement for defence counsel or cross-examination of a witness and a confession was the strongest evidence and all that was needed to convict. The only person who could refute the allegations explain the confession and describe how it was obtained and why it was made, was Charles himself. He didn't say a word, even when asked for his defence. He just stood perfectly still, upright and attentive. He did not repeat his confession to the court. PC Barnes had done a very thorough job. He tracked down all the witnesses that gave evidence, compiled their statements obtained a confession from Charles in the dark, isolated cell in the Nottingham jail, and he'd gathered all the circumstantial evidence included in his account. It was his work, and his work alone, that would lead to the conviction of Charles Rotherham, a high-profile conviction that would go on his record and lead PC Barnes to eventual promotion as governor of Nottingham Workhouse. No one saw the murder happen. No one saw Charles commit it. All the evidence was circumstantial. Even so, with Charles's confession, there was more than enough evidence to find him guilty of murder. Charles's trial was not the only one that day. The trial of two men charged with burglary amounting to £10 lasted from 9.30 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon, a total of five hours. There was the trial of an alleged cattle thief following Charles's trial, which would have started around 4.30pm. That left around 90 minutes to two hours to listen to the evidence, hear from 14 witnesses, come to a judgment and pass the severest sentence on Charles. Very little time to condemn a man to death. Five hours for burglary, 90 minutes for murder. But if the trial was a foregone conclusion, why did the seemingly benevolent judge Sir John Bailey persuade Charles to change his plea to not guilty? which then required a full trial to be held. Judge Bailey may have had a cynical motive. At that time, we know there was unrest in the country and in this part of Nottinghamshire in particular. The loss of livelihood for many local frame knitters because of the development of industrial machinery had led to lower wages, unemployment and more people being forced to work in the dreaded death mills. People were protesting and rioting about the price of food and the low level of wages, and others were attacking the mechanised factories. This breakdown of law and order could not be allowed to continue. At a national level, it was a threat to the wealthy, landowners, judiciary and police, and at a local level, to business, quarry and mill owners, precisely the sort of people who typically would have been members of the secretive coffee room club at the Swan in Mansfield. What was important now, they thought, was for those in positions of authority and influence to be seen in control by severely punishing anyone who challenged them by breaking the law. What better way than to execute a convicted murderer in front of a crowd of thousands of ordinary working people? 
the sort of people who might be tempted to riot and cause civil commotion because of their living conditions, low pay or loss of job. What better way than to present all of the evidence to the public in front of a packed court where witnesses would give their testimony? What better way than to have the trial and the evidence reported in the newspapers so it would become a matter of public record that categorically identified the murderer and his method, therefore stopping any speculation amongst the general population as to who murdered Bessie Shepherd. In the process, it would demonstrate how Nottingham's law enforcement had investigated, persuaded and arrested the perpetrator of the crime within just a few hours. The message would be clear. Charles Rotherham killed Bessie. If you break the law, you will pay the price, just as he will do. If Charles had pleaded guilty, the evidence would not have been heard. Only sentencing would take place, and that would make for less of an impact. Now that Charles had been convicted, Judge Sir John Bailey took his black cap and placed it on his head, as was tradition, to pass the ultimate sentence. He directed that before seven o'clock on Monday, Charles was to be put in a cart and taken to Gallows Hill in Nottingham, the usual place of public execution, where he would be hanged by the neck until he was dead. On the day of Charles's execution, there was considerable excitement in Nottingham. There was nothing like a good hanging to bring out the crowds to witness the killing of one of their own. Today was a triple hanging. Charles for murder and two others for lesser offences. There was an almost carnival atmosphere, with many traders at Gallows Hill selling their produce to the 18 to 20,000 people who had arrived early for the spectacle. Just before seven o'clock in the morning, Charles and the others were taken from their cells and given white linen shirts to wear over their clothes. A sack was put on their heads that would be used to cover their faces when the execution took place. They were then put on an open cart, pulled by a horse and tied together with their backs to the horse. A chaplain accompanied them as they were driven through the streets of Nottingham, surrounded all the time by jeering crowds, throwing rotten fruit and vegetables at them until they finally reached Gallows Hill. Once there, the cart was surrounded by constables to keep the crowds back and relatives of the condemned men were allowed to mount the cart to say farewell. There was no one there for Charles. The time had come. Relatives got off the cart and stood around it, and the executioner then covered the eyes and faces of the prisoners with their sacks. As Charles stood on the cart, the noose was tied around his neck. Once it was secured, the crowd fell silent. The horse tied to the cart was impatient to be on its way, but it didn't move, which gave Charles a few more moments of precious life. And then... The executioner raised his lash and brought it down gently on the horse. The horse moved slowly forward, drawing the cart behind it. Charles, feeling the cart moving, began to walk along the cart trailer towards the back of it so as to maintain his footing until, like a man walking the gangplank, there was nothing there and he fell as if in slow motion until the noose around his neck defied gravity, pulling his body towards the ground, tightening around his neck and halting his fall. He hung there, swinging as he kicked and struggled for breath and suffocated, slowly. This was before the time that they had worked out how to measure the rope to ensure the neck would break. 
This meant that Charles swung at the end of his rope, gasping for air. The relatives of the two other convicted men jumped forward and pulled on the legs of their loved ones to speed up their death and end their suffering. There was no one there for Charles and he died excruciatingly slowly. Eventually, Charles stopped kicking and he was still. The bodies and clothes of the dead belonged in law to the executioner, so once all three men were dead, anyone who wanted to buy them started to negotiate a price with the hangman. The soldiers looked on in the knowledge that at any moment a fight might break out between the relatives of the executed, who wanted to take the bodies of their loved ones for a decent burial, and the medical surgeon's agents who had been sent to take the bodies for dissection and experimentation. Charles's body was taken for dissection before burial. Anthony Buckles, quarry owner, member of the Coffee House Club, and one of the first people to hear about the murder of Bessie Shepherd from Quarryman Wormley, was seemingly generous towards Bessie's grieving mother Mary following the execution of Charles. First, he and the other members of the Coffee House Club organised a charity concert in memory of Bessie, with the proceeds going to Mary Shepherd. This enabled Mary and her son Joseph to stay in her cottage and live in reasonable circumstances. The local newspapers applauded the actions of the quote nobility and gentry of Mansfield who were providing Mary with quote many favours and kind assistance following the murder of her daughter. Anthony also arranged for a red sandstone two feet high to be erected where Bessie had fallen an everlasting testament to the events of that day. They were put in place at the sites of the infamous murder to commemorate the victim. These kinds of sandstones were put in place at the sites of infamous murders to commemorate the victim, or sometimes to warn about the consequences of committing murder. The stone inscription reads, quote, This stone is erected to the memory of Elizabeth Shepherd of Papawick, who was murdered whilst passing this point by Charles Rotherham, July 7th, 1817, aged 17 years. Although these stones were popular around the country at this time, this one is unusual. It names the murderer. Anyone passing the stone can clearly see that it was Charles Rotherham who murdered Bessie Shepherd. There could be no doubt. The stone still stands there today and has been painstakingly restored with a slate plaque inscription added so it can still be read as the stone weathers. So, Charles Rotherham of Sheffield murdered Bessie Shepherd on the Mansfield to Nottingham Road on the 7th of July, 1817. But there are a number of inconsistencies and challenges that come up with that version of events. The first questions whether this was a show trial, with the judge cynically persuading Charles to plead not guilty so that he could demonstrate through the presentation of evidence that it was without doubt Charles who had carried out the murder, suppressing any speculation about any other possible suspects. Also, there are two confessions that contradict each other, both given to PC Barnes and uncorroborated by any other witnesses to them. In one version, Charles is supposed to have said that he crept up behind Bessie and struck her on the head, and in another version, this changes and he approaches her from the front and walks straight up to her and hits her. Newspaper reports are even more confused. The Nottingham Journal recorded that PC Barnes testified that Charles passed Bessie and then sat down and waited for her to catch him up. And the Nottingham Review said that Charles, at that moment, 
got up to her and struck her on the head. Another huge question that up to this day hasn't been properly addressed is that Charles had no clear motive for murdering Bessie. If robbery was the motive, why did he kill her? A hard-living, experienced soldier could easily have overpowered a 17-year-old female without murdering her. In any case, he already had money in his pocket. Why kill her? And I can't not mention P.C. Barnes and his career. P.C. Barnes had achieved an amazing feat by reaching the scene no earlier than 11.30am, interviewing those at the scene, concluding who had committed the crime, visiting every coaching inn or pub along the route, being joined by a second officer at Nottingham and arresting a man walking across a bridge in Loughborough for the murder before bringing him back to Nottingham and then obtaining a watertight confession all on the same day. Witnesses identified precisely and in every detail an unremarkable man they had seen three weeks earlier for only a brief moment and from a distance, walking in the opposite direction along the road as the man in the dock. They had either extraordinary memories or they'd seen Charles paraded through the streets of their hometown after his arrest or PC Barnes had briefed them before the trial, perhaps to aid their memory. One of the witnesses, William Thompson, who claimed to have seen Bessie on the road following Charles, said she was 17 years old. He was exactly right. But how did he know? He had never seen or met Bessie before. How did he know that she was 17 unless he had been briefed by PC Barnes? We only have one account of what happened on the day and it's from PC Barnes. The witnesses gave their accounts to PC Barnes. Charles gave his confession to PC Barnes and it was PC Barnes who gathered all the circumstantial evidence and built up a case against him. We know that there was another officer with PC Barnes from Nottingham but he was never called to corroborate the evidence or the confession or to give his account of what happened. In fact, we never hear from him again. And where's the blood? Bessie was battered to death so her brain spilled out and her eye was detached from her eye socket. And given the spread of blood on the ground and bushes at the scene, blood from the attack would have covered the murderer and their clothing. Even if Charles had wiped the blood away, it's more than likely that his clothing, that we know he'd not changed out of for a few days, would have been stained with more than just a few speckles of blood on his shirt that PZ Barnes reports seeing. None of the other witnesses mention blood at all in their statements. So if Charles committed such a horrendous and exhausting attack, would he calmly suggest to the first person he meets on the road, barely 15 minutes after the claimed time of the murder, that they go to the pub for a drink and a chat, rather than trying to get away from the murder scene as far and as fast and as unseen as possible. The clear question is, what was it that made PC Barnes so sure from the outset that it was Charles who should be pursued, rather than, for example, the soldier or one of the others on the road that evening? It's clear Charles was the easy target. Even before he reached court, He had been tried and convicted in the press and the court by public opinion. So, why did it take five days to charge Charles once he'd been arrested? Did PC Barnes have the evidence before the arrest? Or did he compile a sufficiently robust case once he had arrested his possible suspect? 
There are many questions that remain unanswered around the murder of Bessie Shepherd, and that 200 years after her murder will remain unanswered. If, though, the murderer might have been someone else, who and why the cover-up? Here we can only speculate, and that's exactly what David Marshall does in The Murder of Bessie Shepherd. Many thanks to David for his hard work and extensive research that we summarise here. Let's recap some of the circumstantial facts that might lead us to an alternative conclusion about who murdered Bessie Shepherd. Newspaper reports of the time state that the quote, nobility and gentry of Mansfield were uncharacteristically generous in providing Bessie's mother, Mary, with many favours and kind assistance following the murder of her daughter. It's very likely that the nobility and gentry and the local business owners belonged to the secretive Swan Coffee House Club, whose members were elected by secret ballot and were committed to look after their own in times of trouble. Almost certainly, Anthony Buckles, quarry owner, was a member, and quarryman Wormley, who found Bessie's body, did report the murder to Anthony Buckles. Also, we know that Sarah Clay, the witness who testified that Bessie left Mansfield at precisely 5.57pm, worked in a mill close to the Swan. We know that regular auctions were held near the Swan, attracting people from the villages nearby. So, it's likely Bessie would have been attracted to this area when she was in town. Bessie was at or near the Swan just before she left Mansfield for home. We know that Bessie's family struggled to survive and that Bessie was seeking to provide for her family and that she didn't want to work in the local dreaded death mills. We also know Charles was drinking in Mansfield and it's quite possible he visited the Swan and made himself conspicuous as a vagrant ex-soldier who had drunk far more than he should through his loud and noisy behaviour and could have been noticed by anyone in or around the Swan. We know that PC Barnes was later promoted to Governor of Nottingham Workhouse, an appointment that would no doubt have been helped by a notable police record and the influence of local nobility and gentry. Time and time again, the Swan, the members of the Swan Coffee Club, the area around the Swan, the quarry owner Anthony Buckles, PC Barnes and Charles Drinking come up in the circumstances surrounding the murder of Bessie. So what might have happened? Bessie, in her desperation to support the family, took on the role of main breadwinner. She'd do anything rather than work in one of the local death mills. If Bessie had initially been attracted to the auctions in Mansfield and was perhaps already working at one of the pubs or inns in the area on an occasional basis, she may have fallen into conversation with male customers, including the wealthy members of the secretive Swan Coffee House Club. It's possible she could have become a sex worker as a viable way to support her family. Bessie might have found herself pregnant as a result by one or more of the gentry of the Swan Coffee House Club and gone to Mansfield that day to demand help and financial assistance in exchange for her silence. Without which, the marriages and businesses of the nobility and gentry of the members of the Swan Coffee House Club would come crashing down and reputations would be destroyed by this scandal their comfortable lives would be ruined. Members of the coffee club were bound to help each other. Her body had been found the next day by Quarryman Wormley, who told quarry owner Anthony Buckles of his discovery. Realising it was Bessie who provided sexual services to a member or members of the coffee house club, and that it was one or more of this club who had arranged the murder, 
Anthony Buckles instructed PC Barnes to make a rapid arrest, conviction and execution of an unhomed ex-soldier, likely to be despised by the local population, and who Anthony Buckles and others at the coffee house had seen drunk in the swan the day before, and who they knew was on his way to Loughborough. With this information, it would be easy for PC Barnes to pursue Charles's route and make an early arrest, which would conveniently prevent any further investigation of the nobility and gentry. PC Barnes could then be assured of his future promotion. It's also quite possible that the shoes and umbrella that Charles had in his possession had been found on the road by him out of sight of Bessie's body, which had already been hidden in the ditch. After all, it took Quarryman Wormley three hours before he spotted the body the next morning. If Charles had found the shoes and umbrella on the road, he would of course have picked them up and tried to sell them. Possession, though, does not in itself prove guilt. The nobility and gentry then heaped public generosity on Mary, Bessie's mother, who herself may have been well aware of Bessie's situation. By organising a charity concert and donating the proceeds to Mary, they guaranteed her silence. Just to make sure that there was no doubt about who killed Bessie Shepherd, the members of the Swan Coffeehouse Club erected a memorial stone naming the murderer for all to see. We will never know for sure who so brutally took the life of a happy, hopeful 17-year-old on that dark night on the Mansfield to Nottingham Road. Her story, though, lives on. Local legends have grown up around Bessie Shepherd. Whilst it has no reliability, it is said that if her memorial stone were ever to be moved, Bessie Shepherd would appear. In the 1930s, the stone was moved back a few yards when the road was widened, prompting stories of a ghostly apparition. An eerie figure was seen loitering around the spot where the stone used to be for a number of days afterwards. 20 years later in the 1950s, the memorial was again disturbed when it was struck by a passing car. A short time later, a young couple were on their way to Mansfield and they reported seeing a white figure hovering over the stone. In 1967, a local ambulance driver, John Linley, was on his way home from Nottingham after a night shift in the early hours of the morning. As he passed the stone, the figure of a young girl dressed in white stood by the dip in the roadside. A final curious event happened in 1988, when vandals struck the cemetery in Papawick, where Bessie was buried, and her gravestone went missing. To publicise the missing headstone, two police officers were photographed by the Bessie Shepherd Memorial Stone for an article in the Evening Post about the vandalism. One of the police officers felt an overpowering urge to touch the stone and was immediately inspired to return to the churchyard. He found the missing headstone in some undergrowth about 60 yards from the gravesite. Of course, these sightings are the stuff of legend that serves to keep the story of Bessie Shepherd alive 200 years after her murder. Bessie is remembered today by locals. Her memorial stone still stands by the side of the busy A60 and songs are still sung and books and articles are still written about her murder. And, of course, podcasts are recorded about her murder too.
Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound designed by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Cilias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.